Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is in the series, A Life That Pleases God. As we work our way through Hebrews 11, we see examples of those who demonstrated what faith is. First, let's define faith. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. It's possible to go to church and not live by faith. It's possible just to be a religious person and not live by faith. To finish a marathon race, a competitor has to train and build endurance in order to finish well. Is your faith fit to finish the race? If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Faith Endures. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. It should be of no surprise to you if you've been here on any Sunday morning that we've had recently. We're doing a study on the life of faith because without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's possible to go to church and not live by faith. It's possible to give a tithe and not live by faith. It's possible to uh, even serve or hold an office in a church and not live by faith. And so we want to make sure that we're not just living a religious life, but we're living a life of faith because without that, we cannot please God. Nothing in our life can replace living a life of faith and daily trusting God to obey him in just the, the daily situations we find ourselves in. And so we defined faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. In the remainder of this chapter, we've been going through these little portraits of faith, examples of what faith looks like when it's lived out because God knows that as, as his children, we all love picture books and we all love to see what it looks like when it's fleshed out. And so the examples we're looking at today, most of them, they, they, they come here from the Old Testament. And uh, we've been looking at the life of Moses lately. We looked at Moses' parents and how they hid him. They weren't afraid of the king. Uh, we looked at Moses' life this last week about how he exchanges his life on earth here, not rejecting being called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but instead choosing to invest in the life to come. Well, today we're going to look at endurance, faith endures. So if you will, open up to Hebrews 11. We're going to look simply at one verse today in verse 27. Tried to make this, uh, tried to get two verses into one sermon today, but this would have been a long one. Uh, so we go ahead. You can thank me later. We cut this up into two messages. We're going to look at number one, what endurance is. Hebrews 11, 27. I'll read our text for us today. It says, by faith, he, we're talking about Moses, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured him as seeing him who is invisible. What God praises about Moses here, the life of faith, the thing that God wants us to emulate that we see here, is that Moses endured. He Specifically, he endured anger. He held up and remained strong, even though he knew somebody was mad at him, somebody was upset with him. A lot of us, you and I, we don't like to bear up when we know that somebody is upset with us. We just hate the thought that somebody might be angry with me, may be displeased with me. Well, we're going to see here that God praises Moses specifically for the fact that he knows that somebody's angry with him. He knows somebody doesn't like him. He knows somebody's upset. Somebody doesn't want him there. And yet Moses, we're going to see whatever situation this is, that Moses is going to endure this. It means he's going to go back to it again and again and again. So this is endurance. The word endurance here uh, comes from the root word meaning strength. It means to hold out. It means that when your muscles are tensed up, 
You're, you're willing to endure that. It's not fun to leave your muscles tensed up for a long time. You ever just have to carry a heavy box somewhere for a long time and the first like 60 seconds is okay and after that you're just thinking, where can I drop this thing? You know, it's, that's the feeling you get when your muscles are tensed up and you're carrying a burden, but you continue to carry it because you know that the burden you're carrying is too important to let go. And so it means to hold out, to bear the burden that you're in pain, you're not happy, you're not comfortable, but you're willing to be uncomfortable for the Lord's sake, uncomfortable by faith. You wanna know what this word feels like? Uh, you've experienced this endurance word before. It's every time you go to work out, those of us that do. Uh, you, every time you get on an elliptical trainer or a treadmill, which, by the way, used to be a, a torture device 200 years ago, but somehow now we pay for the privilege. But you get it on elliptical, I always feel the need for endurance when I get on one. We've got an elliptical at home, and uh, I get on there, and it's one of these deals. You can press a program workout, and, you know, I always choose fat burning. I think my elliptical's broken because it hasn't worked yet. But you push this fat-burning workout, and you go, and eventually, you know, you, it starts out. The first five minutes, I actually really enjoy, you know. I've got, I've got a little tablet there. I'm listening to a sermon. I'm doing something, and, and I'm just kind of working out. And the first five minutes are great because it's called the warm-up. And it, it, the incline is at zero. Uh, the resistance is like at a one. And you're just going. The first five minutes, I'm thinking, you know, I really can do this. I don't know why I've, I've hated this before. But eventually, as soon as even the slightest bit of of strain is put on me, do you know that I begin to hear voices? You've heard them too. You're laughing because you've heard these voices. You get on there and you get a little bit of strain. You're thinking, oh man, I got 30 minutes of this ahead of me beyond the warm up. You know, so you're thinking, okay, I can do this, okay. And then it gets harder. Like there's like some little, some little demon in that machine. He's like, oh, I'm gonna really hurt him now. And, and, and it just strains you even further. And then pretty soon you start going uphill and you're like jogging up, you know, Mount Fuji. And you're just thinking, I don't know if I can do this. And these voices in my head are saying, why are you doing this? You could be in the house. You could be resting. You've had a long day. Why would you do this to yourself? You could go get yourself and sit down in front of the TV with a bowl of Blue Bunny, Bunny Tracks ice cream. If you've never had it, thank me later. Uh, I'm just, I'm, these voices are in my head. You've got another 25 minutes of this. And then I think, no, 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 I'm gonna persevere through. And then my mind again, I'm thinking, man, I've gotta have been on this thing for 20 minutes. I look down, it's been five. And it's just, it's so discouraging. And just every thought in my head when I'm working out is, get off this thing. Amber's never gonna know that you didn't do the full workout. You're already sweating, you know? And, it's, it, and so you just, these voices are talking to you. And this is what endurance is. It's the ability to stand firm. It's the ability to have your muscles strained and you're tired and you're exhausted and the voices in the back of your head are saying, stop, quit, don't go on. You don't need to be doing this to yourself. You don't have to do this. But you persevere anyway because you know that you're doing something important. Do we ever hear those voices in life? where maybe you're under a different kind of strain. Maybe it's not muscle strain. Maybe it's a, a, a relational strain somewhere. And maybe one of your coworkers says something to you, and you get voices in your head too, don't you? You don't have to take that. Who do they think they are? How dare you? You know, and these voices get in the back of our head, but God wants us to endure, not to give evil for evil, not reviling for reviling, the Bible says, Okay, but contrary-wise, the Bible says that we give good for evil. Okay, that's endurance. Uh, when we hear those voices in our head that say, you know, say, 
how dare they say that to me at church? I'm gonna find a new church. Or how dare they say that to me in the Sunday school class? I'm gonna find a new Sunday school class. I can't believe they did this or they voted on this in the business meeting. I'm out of here. And these voices of, you should leave. You should stop. You don't need to do this in this ministry anymore. You know, you're down there in the kids' ministry or you're in the nursery and you're, you have this unconsolable child and endurance, right? You get voice in the back of your head. I could be sitting up here in the sermon where I could at least get a good nap. You're thinking that. But endurance says what I'm doing here is significant and important. And so we all have to chase away the inner voice so that we make sure that we're living according to do the right thing and not just the easy thing. That's endurance. And that's where we find Moses this morning. Moses, remember, he lived the princely life for 40 years. He lived a good life, the wealthy life, the respected life. Then he, he killed an Egyptian, fled out of fear into Midian, where he settled down and lived a comfortable life. He settled down, he got married, had kids, went to soccer games, you know, like you and I do. And he lived a comfortable life. And at 80 years old, this old man is called by God out of a burning bush to follow him. In Exodus chapter three and verse nine, it says, now behold, the cry, God is speaking to Moses here, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. And Moses is probably thinking, yeah, it's good. It's about time. I had to kill a man because of the oppression that I saw. But the very next verse, God disappoints him. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 10, God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Oh, boy. That's not what he wanted to hear. It's sort of like when you're at church and you see something that just needs to be changed, something needs to be done, something needs to be improved, and all you wanted to do was complain to the pastor and have him fix things. And then he asks you, well, why don't you be part of that solution? You're thinking, that wasn't, that wasn't what I had in mind at all. And that's where Moses finds himself. You know, I wanted to, like the children of Israel to cry out to you, God, do something about this. And God says, I'm gonna use you. I'm gonna call you out to deliver them from the land of Egypt. Well, Moses eventually uh, comes to the place where he realizes God is not joking with him, he's serious. And Moses in chapter three, verse 11 says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's gonna talk about how weak he is and how old he is and how his voice is soft. But eventually he follows God. And in Exodus 4, 3, it says, Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and says to him, please let me go to my brothers back in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Moses finally agrees to do things God's way. And God is going to lead him into a circumstance in which Moses is going to have to endure the anger of the king. And not just once or twice, over and over again. And knowing what he's about to face. Remember, Moses is a retired, old, weakened, 80-year-old man who's been living the civilian life for the last 40 years. And God is sending him in to do something very unpopular with the most powerful man in the world, arguably the most wicked man in the world. And God's gonna have him do something very unpopular. And so this is what endurance is. It's the ability to hold out, to remain strong, to allow God to put a load on you, a pressure on you, and you don't just immediately drop it and let go. Drop it and leave God. Drop it and just let that ministry die, or drop it and let your marriage go, your job go. It means you hold up under this weight and this burden because you know that it's something God has called you to, and it's too important. And so by faith, you're gonna move on. So by faith, Moses is going to confront Pharaoh, a, a, a man, a king who is regarded as a god. 
And he's going to share something very unpopular. Number two, let's look at what endurance does. Look at verse 27 again. It says, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. When we talk about by what Moses did by faith in leaving Egypt, I just wanted to share with you that this is up to some interpretation. Not everybody agrees on what this event is actually describing. I'm going to share with you why it's a little bit confusing. Some commentators believe it refers to Moses' first departure from Egypt when he fled to Midian. Remember Moses, he grew up, eventually he rejected being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and then he starts to familiarize himself with the plight of the Hebrews, and he sees this abuse for the first time, and he gets angry, and he kills an Egyptian, and he tries to go back to life as normal, pretend nobody ever saw that, but then he even hears the Jews talking, yeah, you gonna kill us too like you did that guy? He's thinking, I've been found out. I'm gonna get killed. And the Bible tells us that Moses fled from Egypt out of fear. I don't believe it's referring to this event because if you look here, the Bible says this is an event he did by faith in leaving Egypt. This is something he did by faith, not being afraid of the anger of the king. And yet Exodus 2.14 says, then Moses was afraid and fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So no, I don't believe like most commentators that this event in verse 27 is actually describing the first departure into Midian itself. Well, that only leaves us the Exodus and that creates a problem for us too. Okay, because the progression of Hebrews 11 is largely chronological. It kind of goes in order. Moses is born, you know, then Moses rejects being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This event happens. And then if you look at verse 28, what's the next event it talks about? The Passover. And not just Passover later on, like the Jews still celebrate today. Not just Passover in the wilderness, but it specifically must be the very first Passover because if you look uh, at verse 28, it says, it's when the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Well, there's no other Passover in the history of man where they were worried about a destroyer destroying them. That's specifically this first Passover. So chronologically, we're kind of in a puzzle here. So let's kind of put this all together and add this together. What event are we talking about? Uh, it's, it's after he left for Midian, okay? It's prior to the Passover, or the very first Passover, and yet it's a time when Moses endured anger from the king over and over and over and over and over again. And God praises him for that faith. What are we talking about? It's that time where he went back into Egypt to lead the people out. And where through a series of proclamations and plagues, Moses endured the anger of the king, which was getting hotter and hotter and hotter by the moment. We say, wait a minute, but that's when he's in Egypt, not when he's leaving Egypt. Let's understand this leaving process is not just the act of actually departing there. God did not send Moses into Egypt to live in Egypt. When God called him from the burning bush, he didn't say, I want you to go move back in and be with your people. He said, I want you to go back in to lead them out. And so this whole process of Moses going to Pharaoh to, to cause them to let my people go and their final departure is they're leaving. This whole process is they're leaving when they left Egypt. It's sort of like many of you, you have children who graduate from high school and they're going to college. There's a whole process of leaving, isn't there? It's not like your kid just woke up one day and says, you know, I'm going to college Let's, let's hit the car. Uh, they graduate from high school. That's when mama and daddies are crying, you know, uh, tears of joy sometimes, uh, but they're crying. Uh, why are you crying, mom? It's because you know this child has entered into the process of leaving. That whole summer, he's leaving emotionally. He's chosen to go to school. 
or if he's chosen to go to a, get, to get a job. Uh, then he goes and he's working his summer job. Eventually he leaves that. Then they start packing up their bags. And then eventually you get in the car and go. But that whole summer was a process of leaving. And so I think that's how it's best to view this circumstance in verse 27. A time following Midian. It was a time of faith. It was part of the whole process of their leaving Egypt. That the, and it's something that he did that he endured over and over and over and over and over. The anger of the king ultimately culminating in the Passover. The final plague. And so we're going to look here at Moses in his confrontations with the king where he had to endure going back again and again and again. Exodus 6.1, but the Lord says to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. So something is going to happen so fierce and so bad, so awful, that Pharaoh himself is like, I want you gone. And that's going to take a lot of doing because right now, Israel, remember, are slaves. They are the backbone of the golden age of Egypt's building campaigns. And so to let them go, this is not going to be a small task. Exodus 7, 1 says, the Lord says to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, when God says that he made Moses like God, doesn't mean that Moses is God or that he's been given godly powers per se. It's that Moses, when he speaks, is going to speak on behalf of God. He's going to represent the wishes of God, which is very interesting because right here, this is going to become a, an interesting encounter. This is gonna be Luke and Darth, okay? Two opposite sides of power, of spiritual power. And you're gonna have, you're gonna have Moses over here who's representing God, and you're going to have Pharaoh over here. And who does Pharaoh claim to represent? Ra and this whole pantheon of gods. And so this is a clash that is going to be taking place here. Verse 2, he says, you shall speak all that I command you. And by the way, when you're representing God, that's your responsibility, not to get up behind a pulpit like this and to simply share your opinions. It's to try to clarify what God has commanded he says, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people go out of his land. A lot of times we see movies and things with Moses, and he's this loud commanding orator, let my people go, you know, and that's not how it was at all. Moses probably a lot older than you thought, too, 80 years old. He's a small, to his own admission, soft-spoken man, and he's kind of whispering things of what God says to the ear of Aaron, who is making the proclamation, but that doesn't make for a fun movie. Charlton Heston probably would have passed on that role in the Ten Commandments. So this is, that's why they portray it that way. But biblically, this is what happened. You have an old man, a shepherd, speaking on behalf of an enslaved people. This is really a weak situation. Old man speaking on behalf of an enslaved people, and he's talking to Pharaoh. And what is he saying? Let my people go. Over and over and over again, we see that phrase, don't we? Let my people go. And so he's going to Pharaoh, and not humbly either. He's not asking permission from Pharaoh. Hey, do you think maybe, sort of, you can see it in your hearts? We've suffered a lot. We've built a lot of things. You think you could let us go? He commands a God king. Mind you, the most powerful man on earth right now. The strongest empire, the strongest man in the strongest empire who is regarded as a god. And Moses, as an 80-year-old man, has the gall to whisper out in hushed tones, you, Pharaoh, need to let my people go. He's commanding Pharaoh on behalf of God. And he calls them what? My people. I.e., they're not your people. 
This is offensive. I don't know if you realize just how offensive this is to have some little puny guy coming in here and commanding this God king to let people go that don't belong to him. In other words, you've done wrong. And then he does it not once, not twice. He does it multiple times. And each and every time, Pharaoh is gonna get more and more angry. The first time he goes up to Pharaoh, he tries to show, listen, it's not just me, this old man you should be afraid of. I represent God. And to show that to you, we're gonna throw this rod down, right? It becomes a serpent. Problem is, magicians, they copied and did the exact same thing, didn't they? Exodus 7:11 says, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. You have an old King James, they use the word enchantments. This word secret arts is a unique word. It's only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. And when it does, it's a word that means hot, or in that particular case, flaming. It refers to the flaming sword of the angel, the cherubim, that was sent to guard the garden. And so what I believe he's talking about here, when he says that the magicians did the same thing, for whatever reason, God allowed them to tap into demonic powers. And so this word hot is referring to supernatural power. That flame that was, that, that sword that was a fire was not a flame with a normal fire. It was a spiritual power. And here, I believe that some of the things they were doing were not simply sleight of hand, but the usage of demonic power and forces. Are there miraculous supernatural things that happen on earth that aren't always God? There are. There are. Remember, the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's referring to demonic forces in the universe. We live in a spiritual war. And that there are times when there will be demonic forces and powers that are manifested that aren't God. And this is important for us to know, that every time you see something that claims to be spiritual, every time you see something that even looks supernatural, even though it may happen in a church, it doesn't necessarily mean it's of God. How do I know this? Matthew 24, 24, within the context of that false church, in the end times, Jesus warns us that they're going to do signs and wonders this is miraculous deeds, and it says, and if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect, those who are born again of God. And so there's gonna be miraculous things that are done. And so what I'm saying is, just because something looks amazing and powerful and spiritual, it looks supernatural, don't just immediately take it in hook, line, and sinker and say, that must be God. It's what they're gonna do in the end times. All right, well, then proceeds a series of plagues. Right? Remember the plagues. That's, that's the one part from VBS that you remember. <clears throat> you remember the plagues. And <clears throat> I want you to understand, too, that these plagues were not just random things that God thought up. Well, i got to make their life miserable. What should I send them? Uh, nobody likes flies. I'm going to send them a lot of flies. I'm just going to bug them, literally. I'm just going to bug these people. Is that what God was doing with these plagues? They're just random things that God says they're going to hate this? Wait till they see this? I want you to see here that from the beginning, this in, if you ever take missions classes, you'll hear and study about different missionaries and they'll have what we call power encounters. On the mission field, a power encounter is when you're approaching these people who worship these false gods and you're coming in there to represent the one true God and they start cursing you and, and trying to do evil things through the spiritual powers and the shamans and things that they have and they're trying to do something evil to you and you go there and you proclaim the word of God anyway knowing that God will protect you from these demonic forces that they are trying to employ against you. That's a power encounter. 
Okay, Moses is having a power encounter here. You have Moses representing God's word, Pharaoh as Horus, the embodiment of Horus, representing the words of Ra, and you have these two clashing, and their gods, if you will, are clashing against the one true God. And so God sends these these plagues here specifically to attack one of their numerous gods. The Egyptians, remember, they, they, they worshiped God under a system of theology we call henotheism. What it means is that they serve one principal deity, in this case, Ra, and then they have 1,400 other smaller, <clears throat> lesser gods of varying power and importance. Uh, it would accurately describe Hinduism today, where they worship principally Brahman, and then they have 330 million other gods. Try teaching that to your kids in VBS. Hey, kids, time to learn the 330 million gods' names. Uh, that's a tough one. Uh, be glad we're not henotheistic. We're monotheistic. We serve one god. Well, here, he's, each one of these plagues is meant to demonstrate the power of Yahweh, the power of Jehovah over all of this pantheon of, of Egyptian gods. And so the first of these plagues, y'all remember what it is because you did watch the Ten Commandments. What was it? Nile River, what happened to it? It turned into blood. Now, just imagine the ramifications of this. The great Nile that irrigated all their farms and their crops from which they would uh, bathe or get drinking water and things. The Nile is central to Egyptian culture. And because of that, they had several, not just one, but several gods and goddesses related to the Nile itself, the chief of which would be Apis, who is the goddess of the Nile itself. In fact, the Nile was regarded as the very bloodstream of Osiris, the king of their underworld. And so this is a direct attack against their god. If they are truly god and powerful, then they shouldn't have allowed this water to be turned into blood. But they did because they are powerless against our God. Exodus 7, 21 says, And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, and there was blood throughout the entire land of Egypt. And so what's, Mo, what's uh, Pharaoh hearing now? An entire nation complaining. Would you complain if all of a sudden you go turn on the tap and all that comes out is blood? You go outside and there's blood. You turn on the sprinkler, there's blood everywhere. You go down to the uh, river here and there's blood everywhere. That's, it's going to stink, and things are going to die, and you can't drink things, and you're mad, and so what are you going to do? You're going to do what every other American does, and you're going to ding, 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 and you're going to call you know, some official and say, what's going on? You need to fix this. I need water. And so Moses is causing Pharaoh to hear all this from his people. Who are you? Aren't you the representative of Ra? Aren't you speaking on his behalf? What about Apis? We've been worshiping her, and she can't even keep our water clean. And so this is going to irritate Pharaoh. This is going to anger Pharaoh. It's going to shame him going to publicly reveal, reveal to all that their gods aren't true. And then Exodus 8.1, God sends Moses into that king. Go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go. There's that cruel, cutting, biting word again. Let my people go. Command a God king to let my people go. Let my people go that they may serve me. Does that take faith and endurance? You're going right into the very man you just offended, the very man that you ruined his life. You made his life miserable, and you're going to go back into him, and you're going to say the same uh, just rude statement that God told you to say before, let my people go. But he goes back in there, and he does it again. Well, obviously, we know Pharaoh hardens his heart because his magicians keep recreating these same events, 
The next plague we see is frogs. We know frogs were sacred to Egyptian culture, much like cows are to Indian culture today. You couldn't kill them. You couldn't have frog leg soup or anything like that. Frogs were sacred. And so this plague of frogs, you got all these frogs here, and you can't do anything with them. Can't mess with them, can't touch them, can't kill them, can't eat them. What do you do? And then these frogs are just everywhere, and they're populating everywhere, and they're dying. Uh, because uh, eventually there's just, they can't sustain themselves. And it says in Exodus 8.13, the frogs died out in the houses, their courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them up together in heaps, and the land stank. You ever smell rotting flesh? I did, not too long ago. Uh, I think God did this just so I'd have a sermon illustration, once again. Uh, a week or two ago, I don't know what it was, but like we had some raw chicken expire in our fridge. I know that never happens to you, but in our home, sometimes we, we put it in the, you know, dad puts away the groceries in the bottom and they hide it and nobody finds it. And all of a sudden, we can't eat this chicken anymore. So what do we do? We put it out in the trash can. Problem was, the garbage had just been collected. You ever put raw chicken in a garbage can and let it sit there for seven days in 90 plus degree heat? You know what that'll do to raw chicken? Uh, I mean, it stank like nothing I can describe to you in polite words. It was just the most vile, foul odor. And we have our garbage can just a few feet away from our back door where we come in. And I had to move that thing off into the outskirts of civilization because nobody wanted to be near this garbage can because it reeked so bad. <clears throat> Here, this is the smell God is describing on a much grander scale. Not one chicken, but like thousands, maybe, maybe hundreds of thousands of frogs or more, millions of frogs. And it says, where, where, where was this smell? It was everywhere. Houses, courtyards, and the fields. You can't get away from it. Can you enjoy your life when something really stinks bad? Can you imagine yesterday it, during this wedding that y'all were here for, uh, if the entire church, the sanctuary, outside, downstairs, and in the restrooms, it all smelled like uh, dead animals? Could you have a fun, could you enjoy that wedding would you talk fondly of that wedding at that point? You would not. You're, I don't care how good your life is, it's awful if it smells like rotting flesh. And that's where the Egyptians find themselves right now. There's just rotten flesh everywhere. You can't, get, you can't get near it. I think what's interesting here, Exodus 8, 7, the magicians, it says, did the same with their magic arts, making frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that funny? When man tries to solve spiritual problems with humanistic solutions, what do you get? You just get more frogs. All they do is compound the problem. They just make it worse. Oh, frogs, we can do that. We can make your life harder and more difficult and worse on you. And they did. And that's what, that's what man does. When you try to solve spiritual problems with humanistic solutions, all you do is you get more frogs. The real answer is to obey God. Well, this goes on and on. Moses keeps making appalling commands, commanding Pharaoh to let their people go. Uh, the next plague here, God sends gnats. This is an attack on the God Set, who is the God of the desert. And it's interesting, the Bible makes mention that in this particular case, the powers that they were tapping into began to fail them. Remember that even when evil people tap into demonic power, they still don't have unlimited power. God can still limit that power. And so at this point in time, they could no longer tap into these demonic forces and powers that they've had power to do thus far. It says that they could not reproduce this plague. And in fact, in Exodus 8, 19, they eventually went to Pharaoh and said, hey, listen, this is the finger of God. And so there was no question about whether or not Pharaoh knew he was fighting against God. 
Even his own people were telling him, this is the one true God right here, and you're fighting God himself. That's why if you read throughout the Bible, it'll say Moses hardened his heart, or no, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then pretty soon, how does the Bible read? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, how are we supposed to understand that? Well, if you read through Hebrews 6, it makes it quite clear that once we've been enlightened to the truth, we've tasted of the heavenly gift, we've seen, uh, we, we've, we've seen this, uh, we've witnessed its power amongst us, when we reject the full revelation and knowledge of who God is, the Bible says it's impossible to renew that person again unto repentance. We don't get to reject the full revelation of who God is. The Bible says there no longer remains for him a sacrifice for sins. Pharaoh is not just ignorantly hardening his heart against some man, some, some peasant from Midian. He knows he's hardening his heart against God, and God says, that's all. You're gonna be hardened unto your own destruction at this point. And that's why it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, after the gnats, God sends flies and then sends Moses back in. After that, God kills their livestock. Remember, that's how they represented their wealth. It'd be like somebody clearing out your whole 401k. And then he sends Moses back in again. And then he causes the Egyptians to break out in boils. You know what a boil is? It's like a, uh, it's, it comes from the word, word meaning uh, hot or to burn. It's, it's, uh, it has the idea of these giant oozing burning sores. Isn't that pleasant? These scabby oozing sores, these giant pus pockets that break out all over your body. How comfortable is that to sleep in? I mean, you can't do anything and enjoy life. And so they just have these, these itchy, scabby, burning, oozing sores all over their bodies. And the, the Bible says here that uh, even the court magicians failed to appear because they were sick too. This is just an embarrassment of Egyptian gods. Your 1,400 false gods have no power against the one true God. Following this, the ninth plague... Oh, no, no, the eighth plague, God sends locusts here. Uh, against, and this is a judgment against Newt, Osiris, and Set. Okay? And these, we got to remember Egypt, who not long ago uh, was feeding the entire world. When the world was starving, Egypt had food. Now what's going to happen? Egypt's going to starve. This is, an, this, is a, a, this is a global embarrassment of the most mighty nation on earth and the most mighty man of the mightiest nation. And then the ninth plague, God attacks the mightiest of all their gods, Ra, the sun god. The one who's in charge of giving them the warmth and the sun causes the crops to grow. This is the mightiest god of their pantheon, the mightiest god of this henotheistic system, Ra, who is in charge of the sun. And it says God caused a darkness and a blackness. And, and sometimes secular historians try to excuse and try to find naturalistic means to explain this away, but it's not possible. They try to say like there were sandstorms. Oh yes, this was common. Sometimes it would black out the sun. That's not what he's talking about at all. This is a supernatural darkness such that it says the people could not see even in their homes. Do you think they didn't have lamps or candles? They still couldn't see in their homes. This is a supernatural darkness. God darkened their eyes. Furthermore, it says that the Jews were still able to see. So this is nothing ordinary and natural. If it was, the Jews wouldn't be able to see either. This is a supernatural judgment in mockery of the greatest of their gods, Ra, and for three days they dealt with darkness. And the Bible says they were all in quarantine. They all stayed in their homes. It was like COVID back then. They just all hung out. And it says none of them left their homes for three days. Just boredom and misery and confusion. And mind you, at that time, they didn't know when this was gonna get lifted. Some of them probably thought, I'm gonna be like this the rest of my life. 
And yet God sends Moses in once again and says, let my people go. I want you to understand how offensive this is. This would be like you or I going into Jerusalem. And while you're on a Holy Land tour, say, guys, I've got to make a pit stop here. I'm going to go into the Dome of the Rock, one of the greatest and most respected Muslim mosques in the world. And mind you, remember that the Dome of the Rock itself is built on the Jewish Temple Mount. This would be like us going into the Dome of the Rock, barging into the middle of their service, burning a Quran right in front of them, causing tremendous damage and things to the Dome of the Rock itself, and then having the gall to tell the imam who's responsible for that mosque and say, I demand by the God, uh, the, the, the one true God, that you, get, that you destroy the Dome of the Rock and that you give the Temple Mount back to the Jews to rebuild their temple. Would you feel comfortable doing that? Probably not most of you. That's probably not what you plan on doing your next Holy Land tour, right? Because that would take tremendous faith. And Moses didn't do it just one time, did he? God praises his endurance. Moses does this 10 different times, going back to Pharaoh, saying, let my people go. And then he follows it up with an insulting insinuation that these people don't belong to you. And then he mocks your gods by sending plagues. This is highly offensive. And it's for these sustained acts of faith that God praises Moses. It's because he endures. He remains strong. He holds up under pressure, under this weight that God has placed upon him to carry, and he doesn't drop the weight. If I ever said the name Audie Murphy, most of you probably have at least heard of him. You're not sure why. I think there's an old movie about him, right? Uh, he's probably one of the most famous, decorated World War II heroes that there is. Okay, old Audie Murphy, uh, and there's a reason we tell stories about this guy. Time uh, does not allow me to tell all his stories. I just want to give you a little sampling here. In World War II, 1945, uh, him and his guys, he's, he's leading a group of guys to, uh, in this uh, artillery. Okay? Because they're artillery, they're pulled way back from the lines, and they're launching things in toward the enemy. And they're in what we call an exposed position. It's not easily defensible. Well, that's okay if you're in an exposed position in artillery, but the problem is the battle started closing in and their position was being attacked by a much greater force of Germans. Now what do you do? You're in an exposed position. Your initial thought is cut and run. Live to fight another day. But old Audie Murphy, what he does is he sees nearby there's a burning tank destroyer, kind of like what you see right here. There's a, and it basically is a tank that's meant to kill other tanks. But it's on fire. What do burning tank destroyers tend to do? They tend to burn. They tend to blow up. We've watched movies. And so this vehicle that other men discarded and, and fled from, Audie jumps into it. And the only thing that's working is a 50 cal machine gun. And so he starts using that. And he's fighting off whole squads here of these German troops coming in. And you think, wow, that took a lot of bravery. I'm sure he's going to get a medal. And he did. Thing was, it wasn't the only time he did that. A month later, okay, a month later, they, uh, they come into another situation. This time he's in a dense forest. They're, uh, they're getting overrun by a much larger group of Germans. And lo and behold, he sees, hey, there's another burning tank destroyer right here. I've been here before. And so he jumps in, but this time, I guess the Germans had learned their lesson. They shot him. And old Audie, he didn't duck into the thing. He didn't flee. He stayed there wounded. And he used the 50 cal machine gun until the, the ammunition was completely spent. He said, that's a pretty brave guy. It is, but he did it again a month later. 
Month later, they come up and they fight this guy. And uh, he's, at this point in time, he's directing artillery and things again. And, and here's another burning tank destroyer as they're being overrun by Germans as he's protecting this major crossroads. And he, he jumps over there again. He's directing artillery fire. While wounded, again, he got shot again. And so this is what endurance looks like. In the military, it's not enough to be brave one time. I'll be brave until I get shot. Or like Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get hit. You know, that's, it, real endurance is you've been hit before and you're gonna put yourself back in harm's way again. You've been hit before. You know what it feels like. You know what it feels like to get shot. You know what it's like to have a bullet lodged in your shoulder and you keep fighting. And then he goes back and does it again and again and again. That is endurance. Not that you're willing to endure something once, that you're willing to endure it over and over and over again. And this is why we buried this guy with more medals than just about any other soldier. Let me ask you this though. In the church, are we at war? This is a battle we're fighting, right? We just talked about it a little bit this morning in worship. We're in a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual war that God has called us to fight. If you remember in 2 Timothy 2, Paul actually calls us soldiers. He says, if you're gonna be a soldier of Jesus Christ, you don't entangle yourself with this world's affairs. Ephesians chapter six, he tells us, put on the whole armor of God, right? You don't put on armor for fun. None of you are gonna go home, put on armor, and then go sit down and watch Netflix. None of you would do that. We put on armor for one reason. That's to protect ourselves because we've got a battle to fight. And so Ephesians 6 says, we've got a battle that we're in. We're putting on the armor of God. And he says three times there that we are to stand and withstand the forces of the devil. We, like Audie Murphy, we keep taking the hit. We know it's coming. We take the hit anyway, but we endure. We don't cut and run. What does that look like to endure in the spiritual, zone, spiritual battle zone? I think for one, it means that uh, even though maybe you've failed and you've sinned against God a certain way, you don't just give up and just go with the flow. You fight it again. I think it means, too, that when somebody hurts your feelings, they say something insensitive to you in church. You don't just cut and run to another church. Yeah, you'll have voices in the back of your head saying, you can't go to church and worship here anymore because you have an offense with that person. What should we do, run and find another church? No, because you're going to get offended there too, and you're going to get offended there too, and you're just going to be running your whole life. What do you do? You go and you talk to that person, you make it right, and you worship God. You don't cut and run. You remain under that weight. Yeah, but they don't like me. They're mad at me. They're upset with me. That's what endurance is. It's the ability to withstand, in this particular case, specifically with anger, with, with Moses against Pharaoh, he endured the anger of the king. As Christians, do we ever have to endure the anger of people? the anger of a lost world. You share the gospel one time, you're like, finally, I'm gonna share today. I've been studying how to share the gospel. I'm gonna do it. You do it, and they mock you, and they make fun of you, and they say you're, you're stupid for doing it, for believing in Jesus. I thought better of you than that. Are you never gonna share the gospel again because that was a difficult first encounter? Endurance says you go back again knowing full well the weight and the pain of experiencing that. You don't just drop out of a ministry because somebody there didn't do something your way. You don't just abandon something because maybe the church vote didn't go your way. We endure. Yeah, it might be painful. There might be difficult. There may be somebody angry with me. I have to endure that. But that is the very thing that God praises Moses for here in Hebrews 11, 20, uh, 27. Now, do we endure because you're just a special breed of Christian? Maybe you're just stronger than others. Was Moses stronger than most people at this point? 
How old was he again? Okay, some of y'all are listening. He was 80 years old. How many of you 80-year-olds feel like you're at your mightiest at age 80 plus? You probably wouldn't say that you were. And Moses would agree with you. He, would, he described himself as being weak. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Okay, he realized he's not in his prime. Exodus 4.10, he tries to slip out of this role. He says to God, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. He says, I am slow of speech and tongue. Totally ruin your image of Moses. He wasn't the mighty man of the prince of Egypt. He wasn't the mighty man of the Ten Commandments. The Bible says he was quiet and slow of speech. He's got an old man voice, such that he was embarrassed to speak publicly and, and represent God. When I first entered the family, we would always have these big family meals together and it, like at Amber's house, and, and she would have aunts and uncles and grandparents and everybody there at the table. And her family's not quiet. Okay, that's where she gets it. Uh, they weren't quiet. They, 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 it's, we're talking about loud laughter and people talking. And, it's, and then all of a sudden, I'm sitting here eating, enjoying this and laughing with them. And, and my wife will elbow me and she says, hey, grandpa's talking to you. And sure enough, I look over and there's Grandpa Neely and he's just kind of looking at the table. I'm like, I'm supposed to hear that over, over this? And here he's just kind of, I had no idea. And I'm having to lean in. I'm having to plug my ear. I'm having to listen in. Uh, and at this time, he's probably somewhere around 80 years old. Okay, he, was, he had a quiet voice. It wasn't commanding. It wasn't demanding. And so when you think of Moses at the state in which he's confronting Pharaoh boldly and not afraid and he does it, he endures over and over and over again, he's Grandpa Neely. He's going to Moses with Aaron. He's going over to Aaron, whispering to him. And then Aaron basically interprets it to Pharaoh. Let my people go. That is strength. You don't have to have a strong body to be strong of heart. And this is not, he's just an ordinary man at this point. He's a civilian. Last 40 years, he's just been raising sheep and going to soccer games. That's it. And now he's confronting Pharaoh. So you don't have to be special to be strong. You just have to have faith. Number three, why do we endure? Endurance, remaining faithful into the end, is often associated by God with true conversion. Matthew 24, describing the end times, talking about how things are gonna heat up for Christians, Jesus says this, then they will deliver you, my disciples. They're going to deliver you up to tribulation, which is a persistent period of suffering and trial. He says they're gonna put you to death, you'll be hated by nations, many will fall away, they're gonna betray one another, gonna hate one another, false prophets will arise and lead many astray and become lawless. They're, they're gonna be living sinfully, even the religious people, they're gonna be living just like the world. He says their love is gonna grow cold. They're just gonna be religious, but they don't really love God. They're singing songs, but they're not worshiping God. They're coming to church, but they're not serving. They're not engaging. They're not, they're not concerned about the mission of God. They're just doing religious stuff. Their love grows cold. And, God, and Jesus says, days are coming where it's gonna be like that. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What kind of person is saved? It's the person who endures. It's the person who, whose faith is not rocked and shaken and destroyed. I don't stop serving God because I lost my job. I don't stop praying to God because I was praying for this child who has cancer and I prayed for months and God still allowed this baby to die so I'm never gonna pray to God again. That's not endurance. 
Those who are truly born again, our faith in God is not shaken by external things. Whether it's false prophets, people teaching false things, whether it's people betraying us. Mind you, it says they will betray one another and hate one another, that there's gonna be religious people betraying and hating each other. Glad that never happens in American churches, but it can happen. And it says our faith still doesn't go away. And he says one of the evidences that you're a child of God, that you are truly saved, is the one who endures to the end. It's a doctrine we call the perseverance of the saints. A truly born-again child of God will not place their faith in Jesus Christ and then not live by faith the rest of their life. We are someone who endures hardship like a good soldier. I cannot not believe in God. I cannot not follow God. Yeah, my life is hard. Yeah, it's difficult sometimes, but I'm not gonna cut and run. And that's where we find Moses. It's for this kind of endurance that God praises Moses in Hebrews 11. Now, people often ask me, you know, how long did these plagues actually last? Because if you watch the movies, it looks like a week and a half, right? Like one a day, maybe, one every couple of days. Um, We don't know for sure. We do know that Moses lived 40 years as a prince, 40 years as a civilian, uh, 40 years roughly in the wilderness, and then he died, and he lived to 120. And so that leaves us, uh, if you read the Jewish Mishnah, it says that he, it, they endured these things for about a year. Okay? At the very least, we're talking months and months and months of time where Moses had to keep coming back in and confronting a man, making him angry, and he'd have to go home. And when he went home, he'd have to deal with the anger of the Jews too. Hey, Moses, thought God sent you in here to lead us out. What's the deal? And so God's people are complaining to him. And then he goes back to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hates him. He comes back, and God's people hate him. He goes back to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hates him. And it just gets worse and worse and worse, and he has to do this for months and months and months and still not drop the weight that God had given him to bear. That is endurance, and God praises that as faith. Why would Moses do this? Look briefly here, verse 27 again. By faith he left Egypt, not afraid of the anger of the king, for or because he endured, and then it shows us why he endured, as seeing him who is invisible. Why did Moses endure and keep confronting Pharaoh? Because he, it's as if he could see God right there. Moses lived with a conscious, continual awareness that God is right here. It's what in some Christian circles they'll call practicing the presence of God. That you are constantly aware of his presence with you. That he is here and he is with me and he is powerful. It's what faith is. Remember Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's the assurance of things hoped for. Remember, it's that thing where we, where we know there's a reality beyond this. We described it to a, a McDonald's logo on the highway, and you know there's a McDonald's there, and that becomes my hope, and I'm gonna fill my belly, and I know there's something real beyond this. It's a conviction of things not seen. It's a reasonable conclusion that you deduce from the clues that you've been given. We compared it to a courtroom with jurors. They don't know for sure this guy killed this person, but eventually they see enough evidence that they form a reasonable conclusion that he did or he did not. That's what we do with God. We don't, we don't believe in God blindly. There are clues everywhere, all throughout nature, our bodies, uh, the universe, the, uh, the stars, moon, and sun, the, the word of God itself, and we believe there's enough evidence here that points to the fact that God exists. And this is why Moses persevered. It's why Moses endured. It's because to him, God was always right there. Will that change how you live when you know God is, when you're always consciously aware of the very presence of God? You ever try to sin and pray at the same time? You ever try to sin and be consciously aware of the presence of God? It's really hard to do. I don't recommend you try it, but it's hard. 
Because when you're aware of the presence of God, it'll make you bold to endure. It's sort of like when you rode a bike. I have a picture of my bike I grew up with as a kid. Uh, it's a John Deere bike. Even in Iowa, every, even the kids drove John Deere's, okay? This is my, my wonderful little bike, a little yellow bike with black and green stripes on it. John Deere, and had a big fat bike for some reason. Had no idea why. Uh, but it did, and a huge banana seat that all the kids had in their bikes. And my dad taught me how to ride a bike. And it was terrifying. Back then, they didn't have a lot of children's bikes nearly as much as they do today. They got bikes for all sizes and ages. Back then, it was sort of like shoes. Your mom bought them too big for you and told you to grow into it. That's kind of what our bikes were like. They, were, they would buy them too big and say, you'll grow into it, but I'm going to teach you as this little kid on this big bike. And so you get on this bike, and you can't even barely touch the pedals, but on your tiptoes. And to get off, you have to hop off the seat and put your foot on the ground. And it was terrifying to ride these bikes. But my dad convinced me to ride a bike because he said he was going to be there with me. And so he and his best friend, Tom Hall, they're hanging out in the driveway of this old acreage we were on. And he would hold the back of the bike. So I couldn't see my dad. I'm looking forward, and I'm, I got my feet on the pedals. And I would only get on that huge bike because I knew my dad was nearby, and he was holding the bike. I could hear his words. I could feel his stabilizing presence on the back of the bike. And so I began to pedal by faith because my dad was telling me to. And eventually, I didn't realize I was pedaling, and my dad was no longer there even holding me. I couldn't see him, but I could still hear his words, and by faith, I continued to pedal on until I realized my dad didn't tell me how to break. So I ran into a barn, and I stopped. And I, I, that's how I stopped my bike for like the first three weeks of riding bikes. I just find something to run into. Um, I digress. The point of it is this. My dad is the reason that I had the boldness to endure, to keep learning how to ride a bike, how to stay on the bike, how to keep forward, moving forward on the bike, because I heard his words and I felt his stabilizing presence in my life. Is that any different with us and God? Why do we live by faith? Why do we endure? Why do we remain up under hardship? Why do you come back to church? Why do you not just immediately cut off all the relationships that have hurt you in the past? Why do we not do that? It's because we endure as seeing him who is invisible. We can't see God, but we live as though we can. That's what faith is. I can't see him, but I live as though I can. Well, what reasonable assurance do we have that God is actually there behind you? Well, for one, we, we can genuinely feel his stabilizing presence in our life. We see his power in our life. And two, we have his words, like my father. His words are constantly behind us saying things like Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Friends, I pray that your faith will endure. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today that as we're studying the life of Moses and we see what a true Christian endurance looks like, it means that we just... We hold up under difficult circumstances, and sometimes we do it a long time, and people hurt us, people who shouldn't hurt us, and they do, suffering that we shouldn't have, but we do because we live in a fallen world, and we just wonder sometimes, why me, God, and why don't you change this? I pray, Lord, that you would give us today the faith of Moses to endure who went back in front of Pharaoh again and again and again, knowing full well what he was gonna get back into. And God, I pray today that we would learn from that and give us the boldness maybe to re-enter relationships we've given up on, to share the gospel again, even though maybe we got scared off, to resume our commitment maybe with a ministry that we just decided we're never gonna do again, and to get involved with, to support, and to really invest ourselves maybe into a church that maybe 
maybe folks are feeling like giving up on because it's full of people who, are, who maybe have hurt me before. God, give us faith to remain strong, knowing that you are behind, our, uh, behind us, that you are stabilizing our life, holding on to the back of that bike as we pedal forward in faith. And we go forth by your words, I will never leave you or forsake you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.